Our scripture reading today is from Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, TK, uh, for that beautiful reading of the passage. If we have not yet met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. It's good to be with you all. I see so many faces in the room that, that I've either just met or haven't met yet. And uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, you're catching us at a unique time in our life as a congregation. Um, and it's been a sweet, sweet season that the Lord has had us in, and we're really looking forward to what's coming next. Um, kids, I appreciate you receiving from Melanie um, the, the counsel she just gave you. And I, and I want to encourage you, uh, kids in the room, um, listen to my sermon and listen for one thing you can tell your parents about, uh, your mom or your dad about, um, on the drive home. Something that you heard me say um, that you connected with. So it, almost, it doesn't matter what age you are, you, you can do this. So listen for something uh, in here and tell your parents on the drive home. And maybe parents, you can ask them, okay, what did you hear? So <clears throat> we're in Acts chapter 4. Things are rolling. We have to remember in context that the church, the, 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 church, the Christian church right now is still, uh, even though it's a lot of people have put their faith in Jesus. It's still pretty localized. We're still primarily in Jerusalem and in that area, uh, and it's not that far out from uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and so there's a lot of new things happening, and so as we're reading these early chapters of the book of Acts, what we're reading about is a church that's learning how to be a church, uh, where there is no model really for this. They're figuring it out as they go through prayer, through the Holy Spirit's leading, but they're working their way through this. And one of the things that becomes vitally important for them then and is still remains vitally important for the church now is unity. They're fighting for unity. They're trying to figure out how can we have unity. And it's not, it's not a given because, because the body of Christ is made up of a people that come from a range of um, backgrounds and uh, languages. And so the church is coming together in, in, a, in a way that is, gives us the opportunity this morning to kind of focus on the role and the importance of unity. And what does that mean? One of my hopes for us as, as a church is that when we come through the door, that we don't check our baggage, that we come in as we are, 
Uh, my, my hope is that this would be a place that would be safe for that. And I want that to be the case because there are no simple stories in the church. There are no simple stories in life. People are complicated. We have pasts. We have sorrows. There's no shortage of wretchedness among us and in us. And the beauty of the gospel is we come with empty hands or we don't come at all. But what we should do is I think we should take great encouragement to see that this has always been the case for the church. The church has always been made of people who are struggling and broken. And we see this even in the early church. And yet, when we see their unity, one of the things that we see is there's no great distance between them and redemption. No matter where they are, because that distance between our brokenness and Christ's redeeming work has been bridged by the work of Christ. And so before we can be united to one another, we have to be united to Christ. But once we're united with him, we can then be united with one another. When we look at this passage, one of the questions that I want us to look at, really the question I want us to focus on, is what is the reason for their unity? Why are they seeking unity? Why are they unified? And we see it really in the opening clause of this text that that TK just read for us, and that is it says, the full number of those who believed. There it is. That's the source, the reason for their unity is that they were united by what they believed. They had a faith that they shared. The early church was united by this common belief and every good, everything good about them and the unity that they displayed was the result of the unity that they had in Christ. And so the unity in Christ was rooted in their faith. It was rooted in what they believed. And this is an image that we've used a couple of times during this series already, and that is that for Christians around the world, there's kind of a, of a shorthand that we have with each other. There's an understanding that we have of the main things that we're committed to in life, and we, we practice it when we come to the communion table, where we're a group of people, no matter where we are in the world, who understand that we're sinners saved by grace, that we're people who come to the Lord with empty hands if we come at all, and that he provides everything we need, and all we can do is receive from him. Even our obedience to him is a response to grace. And so we live then in humility, and we live in generosity as people who are responding to the grace of God. And so you can go over, say, to Ireland, and you can meet a Christian there, and they will have this same kind of core foundational understanding and commitment and passion that you have coming from wherever it is that you come from, you know? And, and that's a beautiful thing, and it was true then, and it's true now, and it's such a gift for the church. They believed in what they were proclaiming. That's one of the other things we have to understand is there, these Christians were not just selling a product to the world. Uh, in fact, what they believed was something that the world kind of looked on with disdain. That hasn't really changed either. They believed in what they were proclaiming because their lives personally had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was their faith. It was their faith. And so Christ is the reason for their unity. And our text shows three primary ways that they were united. So this is a good old-fashioned three-pointer, this sermon. And I'm going to talk about three essentials to true unity in the body of Christ. They were united in their faith, they were united in their possessions, and they were united in their mission. 
So we will breeze through these pretty quickly, but you'll see them in the passage. The first is that they were united in their faith. The text says they were of one heart and soul, or you could replace that with the word mind, which means they were united to each other emotionally and also in their thinking. They loved each other enough to carry each other's burdens as their own, and they stood together in their faith in Christ. It's the beauty of the church. And one of the things that we're seeing here, I love this little detail that we're seeing, is what we're seeing is a beautiful picture of God's work in response, God's work in in believers, in response to what Jesus prayed in the upper room on the night he was betrayed in John 17, his high priestly prayer. I'm going to read a part of that because we're seeing it kind of fleshed out here in this text. Jesus prayed this to the Father the night he was arrested. I do not ask... For these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And that's happening. It's being fulfilled, that prayer, in the passage that we read. By the way, it's also being fulfilled in this room. It is. And that's pretty beautiful. And so one of the things that we have to recognize when we talk about unity is that biblical unity is not uniformity. Uh, It doesn't mean that everybody is the same or that we even should be. Uh, We know from Acts 2 that these believers came from all over the world. Uh, It's not the kind of unity where everybody read the same books, where everybody watched the same movies or refrained from watching movies, uh, where everybody educated their kids in the same way or followed the same dress code or had the same likes, the same dislikes. That's not what the passage is talking about because it's not the goal of Christian unity. Because these things are not what we're called to be united by. We're not called to be united by style, but we're called to a unity of purpose. The proclamation of the gospel as ones who have tasted the grace of God. It's this whole idea of part of what unifies us is we're Christians in public. And so we're a community that relies on each other for encouragement, support, uh, correction, Uh, uh, fellowship, friendship, we rely on each other for these things, knowing that we're coming from a lot of different angles, which is such a gift that we're given. We're always going to have things that are going to divide us. That's always going to be the case in the church. If you're looking for a church where everybody is just like you, you will not find it, or you'll probably have to join a cult. Because the church is meant to be a place where people come and they struggle together, and we learn and we grow spiritually together. We're always going to have things that divide us. We're never going to be exactly the same. And this is actually because the Lord made us this way. He made us to be a diverse people. It's his doing. So what ought to unite us is the grace by which we're saved. That's what unites us. And that's what we see here is they're united by this faith that they share. The second thing is they're united in their possessions. The text says that they shared everything that they had. It even says that when people sold things, they laid the money at the apostles' feet, which is probably an indication of some sort of a legal 
transaction that's happening here. Now, there's a lot of squirrely ways you could take a passage like this, so let me just say some things to be clear uh, on this. Because you might say, well, that looks like socialism, right? It, it isn't. Neither is it capitalism. Uh, socialism says what's yours is everyone's, right? And capitalism says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and everything has a price, But what we see here is a different sentiment altogether. The church's point of view was not what's yours is everyone's or what's mine is mine. The church's point of view is what's mine is yours. The heart of the material unity that you see here, the heart of it is generosity. That's it. They regarded their prosperity as a means to care for one another. And we see this in why they gave. Their giving was voluntary. It wasn't compulsory. And they were giving in proportion to the needs that they recognized among them. They were giving to their church leadership, and they were giving for two specific reasons. For the further proclamation of the gospel and to meet the needs of the congregation among them. That's why they were giving. And so we see that it was an early practice And that the leaders of the church had this responsibility to disperse funds according to need. And they all shared in this in the work of the church because they were all together. They were one. Which leads to the question of ownership. What is your view of ownership and stewardship? What do you have that you would say, this is mine? This is mine. 1 Chronicles 29 is this beautiful passage where David is dedicating the temple And he prays this prayer about how this all came together. And he teaches us so many things about the difference between ownership and stewardship. And one of the things that he says is nothing that we have is our own. It all came from God. And whatever we possess, we do as stewards, not as owners. To live as owners, not stewards, is to be dishonest with God's resources. In fact, in Acts 4, what we see is a picture of handling God's resources with integrity. If, everyone, if someone had something that their brother needed, they regarded their possession as a means to meet that need. And it's a radical view. It's not how we're wired to think. But it's not rooted in something like socialism because it wasn't compulsory. It's rooted in hospitality. It's rooted in generosity. It's rooted in care for one another. They were as one with their possessions, just like they were as one in their faith. The third thing is that they're united in the work of ministry itself. Because remember, Christianity is a go-and-tell kind of faith. It's something that if we believe, it comes with a commission to bear witness to Christ. And so they're united in the work of ministry, emotionally, mentally, materially, intellectually. They're united in this work together, and it unifies them, and that is proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. We've already seen in this series how when the early church faced persecution, for example, they prayed not for protection, but they prayed for boldness to be able to continue the proclamation of the gospel. This text then, uh, which is kind of something of an ellipsis in the book of Acts really, because what it's doing is it's showing an ongoing passage of time. Uh, What it's showing us is that God answered that prayer for boldness and that they continued in the work of testifying about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They kept on. 
And not only did they continue to speak, but we see, too, that their ministry was powerful. Great grace was upon them as they testified. Great grace was upon them. Great grace is upon us. Whenever grace is at work, people are changing. People are softening. They're growing in wisdom. They're growing in humility. In my previous sermon last week, we, we looked at how often God brings struggle into our lives to awaken us from the slumber of the ordinary business of just looking out for ourselves. Because when we begin to think that life is just about us, God is gracious to introduce struggle that makes us say, Lord, help. It awakens us a hunger for something deeper, a longing for glory that can only be satisfied by God himself. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for how the Lord has been working in the life of this church. We see it in this passage, things that the gospel does in our lives that's beautiful and that really isn't found anywhere else. We see that for people, the effect of the gospel on their lives was that their faith in Jesus, on the one hand, tightened their relationships with one another and loosened their relationship to things. And the point is that even with things like possessions, the only value that they should really have in our lives is, the, is that they give us an opportunity to steward them for the purpose of caring for others well. And this is so different from what the world values because the world values using resources to pronounce the distance between us and others. And what the gospel says is, no, use what you have your relationships, your resources to bridge the distance between you and others. I don't believe that giving up all we possess is the key to loving others. I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. I don't believe that giving stuff away will help us love others better well. But loving others will certainly help us give our possessions away, right? You see how that works? There's a cart and a horse in this scenario. What this passage is teaching us is that loving other people well is the key to being able to give up all that we possess. Can we be free from a love of things without also being firm in a love for other people? I don't think we can. And so we all set the affections of our heart upon something. You do, I do. There's something that we give our affections to. And one of the things I think this passage is showing us is that unless our affections are set on God and his people, it will inevitably be on things. It'll be on something like status, rank, place. But here, it's this self-emptying love for the purpose of a shared faith that comes with it, that brings with it a mission to proclaim the gospel. The Christian life is one of abandonment to God. And by his grace, he changes us and he unites us to one another in ways that are beautiful and lasting. One of the things I think about a lot as a part of the church is how because of this faith that I share with you, I spend more time with you than I spend with my mom right? Because she lives in a different state and I see you every week. And I love my mom and I, want to, I wish she was here and I spend every day with her. But I spend more time with you than I do with her. 
And that's because the way the church is designed to work is we're called to be an active, ongoing, regular community with one another where we grow and we thrive because we have this shared faith and these shared resources where we can help and serve one another as we live out this common shared purpose that we've got. I'm thankful to be in this with you guys. I'm excited for what the Lord has for us. And I'm, I may, by the way, I should mention that as a closing comment, um, that this church has been profoundly generous. Um, the, the, and we've seen it just in the way that you all have contributed to uh, the season that we're in with building out a facility. Um, we we uh, wanted to be able to raise about $350,000, and we are a third of the way there um, because of you all. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing, and I'm grateful for it. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this sermon up, and we'll come to the communion table. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this congregation, which is made up of Lord, one of the ways you've blessed us so much is with um, generational representation, uh, that we have this lunch happening across the hall for 55 plus, and there's over 30 people going to that. And over to my left, we have children uh, who love this place and feel comfortable here uh, and enjoy being with one another and enjoy interacting with the grown-ups and love singing the doxology at full volume. And everything in between, Lord, you have blessed us, and so we're thankful. Thank you. Thank you. Keep us faithful. Keep us devoted to you. Keep us tethered to uh, your calling on our lives to love one another well, to meet each other's needs, and to live out this mission you've called us to be Christians in public together, bearing witness to your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.